First Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God and being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The opening verses of chapter 3 focus on the conduct of the believer in verses 1 through 17. But now Peter will focus on the Lord Jesus who is Christ to the believers in verses 18 through 22. Remember the chapter began with a description of submission in the home in verses 1 through 7. Submission under suffering in verses 8 through 14. And now the focus is going to be our submission, if you will, or subjugation to the lordship of Jesus. And Peter will give a description of four things that are accomplished through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus in verse 18. His journey into the spirit world in verses 19 through 20. His resurrection in verse 21. His ascension and exaltation in verse 22. Maybe as a young person you grew up with the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. You remember throughout the creed, it, it talks about specifics of the Christian faith. I believe in Jesus, God of God, true light of true, true light, begotten, not made, one with the Father. Here... There is a mini, if you will, proclamation of faith that was, was extant in the early church. Verse 15 provides the context. Remember what it said earlier. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear. And so, part of the challenge that we have is Peter is making a simple but powerful point. We are to expect unjust suffering. The unjust suffering by believers began with the unjust suffering of Jesus. The unjust suffering of Jesus brings triumph over sin, victory over death, the conquest of Satan. And at the core, at the very center of the gospel is the concept that Jesus, the righteous, died for those who were unrighteous. The victory of Jesus, the triumph of Jesus through the undeserved suffering has brought redemption and reconciliation for sinful human beings. And that's the idea. In the sacrifice of Jesus, evil men 
were able to do what evil men want to do with Jesus, get rid of him. But the sacrifice of Jesus was also able to do what God wanted to do, save sinners. And in the suffering of believers, we are to have hope and comfort that our suffering will accomplish the purposes of God. Now remember that suffering rarely seems fair, at least from the perspective of the person who's enduring the pain. So Peter invites the reader to consider God's perspective. Remember, Peter has already written, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than suffer for what is doing wrong, in verse 17. So unjust suffering is better than deserved punishment. Jesus didn't deserve to die. Yet the suffering of Jesus justifies the sinner, but it also purifies the saint. I, I was reading a story many years ago about a large American shoe manufacturer. And, and they sent two sales representatives out to different parts of the Australian outback to see if they could drum up some, some business among the aborigines. And sometime later, this is how long ago it was, the company received telegrams from the agents. The first said, no business here, natives don't wear shoes. The second one said, great opportunity here. The natives don't wear shoes. You know, when you're a, minister, a missionary or a minister and you look around, you come into the world and you see a world estranged from God. And you could, you could say, these people here, they don't want Jesus. Or you could look around and you could say, these people are estranged from God. They need Jesus. Think about that. You look around you at the world and you see a world estranged from God and you bring that to their attention and they tell you, I don't want God. But then you see another group of people estranged from God, distant from God, empty, dark, lonely, and they want to have a right relationship with God. You know, we don't have to beat the bushes, do we, to drum up business for suffering? Typically, you don't have to invite people to suffer. Jesus told us to expect suffering in John chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. The writer of Hebrews told us to expect suffering in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. As a matter of fact, Paul, when he's writing sort of his last will and testament, as he pens the final few words to Timothy, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. And that, remember, is Peter's audience, suffering Christians. And so in this discussion of submission, Peter now turns his attention to the submission of the lordship of Jesus Christ to the will of his heavenly father. And so it begins with Jesus bears our sin in verse 18. Look again what it says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. I want you to imagine just for a moment, Peter as father and grandfather. 
and his child or grandchild comes to him and the child asks the question, why did Jesus have to die? It's a simple enough question, isn't it? Peter's simple answer in this verse, that he might bring us to God. Unjust suffering, yes. Wicked persecution, yes. But there was a plan and a purpose behind the sacrifice of Jesus. In the plan of God, it was to bring us to God. The implication being, of course, that we are estranged from God, distant from God, in need of some way to have a right relationship with God. Now, some Bible scholars believe that verse 18 is an ancient hymn that was sung in the early church as an early liturgy. This particular passage was repeated perhaps over and over and over again. And some Greek manuscripts have the word suffered coming from the word pasco, which connects even more to the previous verse in, in, in 17. It's, it's a word that has its root and origin in, in suffering and in sacrifice. And then other manuscripts have another Greek word, apothenesco, died. But whatever the phrase is, Almost certainly the net result is the same. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. Jesus paid the penalty for sins. The righteous, that's Jesus, singular. For the unrighteous, in the original language, it's plural. Everyone. By the way, the word righteous, like I said, is singular. The word unrighteous is plural. But it's interesting when it says Jesus suffered once for all sins. We're left with the definite, definite impression that the sacrifice of Jesus is complete and sufficient. Let me try to be even more clear. The sacrifice of Jesus is a sufficient sacrifice. It is a complete sacrifice. No one, I repeat, no one else has to die for sin. Do you understand? That the sacrifice, the death of Jesus provides the satisfying solution for the problem of estrangement. That's part of the point that is being made. Now Jesus was put to death, look what it says, in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And by the way, the phrase that translates the Greek term pneumati which it may refer to the Holy Spirit or it may refer to Christ's divine spirit in contrast to his human flesh or his human body. Bible teachers and scholars are divided whether spirit should be in capitals, that is like in reference to the Holy Spirit, or in small caps in reference to Jesus's human spirit. And by the way, part of the answer depends on whether the preposition is to be understood as in or by, since both make sense depending on the context. If the reference is to the Lord's own spirit, here's what we know. Jesus is 
is sinless. And once the penalty for sin has been paid for our sin, death no longer has any claim on him. It, it's not even able to corrupt his body in the tomb like it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 27. In Psalm 16.10, the psalmist said that he wouldn't leave the anointed one in the grave to suffer corruption. So clearly the Holy Spirit we know, is involved in every aspect of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit who overshadows Mary at her conception. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, and in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Lord Jesus offers himself without spot. That means without flaw, without blemish, without anything that would in any way hinder the work of God or the acceptance by God. It says he offered himself without spot unto God in his death. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14, through the eternal spirit. The Bible also says that Jesus was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 verse 11. And so clearly the spirit was at work. And in verse 19 it says by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in, in prison. So now Peter begins a conversation that becomes very difficult for us to understand. We're faced with a problem. When he says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, by whom ties in verse 18, by whom, that is, God, the Holy Spirit, he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Here's the problem. Who are these spirits in prison? And by the way, the word translated prison is a very interesting word in the original language. It means a cage or a container. And once again, language Sometimes will help us clarify the problem, but sometimes language will compound the problem. Because the word translated spirits, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits, is the Greek word pneumata. And again, typically it speaks of supernatural spirits, of angelic spirits, of demonic spirits. Can it ever be used of human spirits? Yes, depending on the context. So again, we're left with yet a, the, the problem snowballs. Is this human spirits? Is, are they angelic spirits? Are they demonic spirits? When did Christ make this proclamation? What was the content of his message? And the word proclamation or preached is... Carizo, it's the typical word that's translated to preach. Typically when we think of the word, we think of the message of the gospel, but it doesn't always mean the message of the gospel. It can just simply mean an announcement, or it can mean a proclamation depending on the context. And so in verse 20 it says, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. And so we're given a few more clues in verse 20, who formerly were disobedient, whoever these spirits were, number one, they were disobedient, and they were disobedient in the past, when once the divine long-suffering waited. Who or what is the divine long-suffering? 
Clearly, this can be a title of God. This could be a title of the presence of God, the majesty of God, the person of God, because the Bible speaks of God as being holy, but also just. And who, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So we're given yet another clue. It seems to be people or things or circumstances prior to the flood of Noah. And then we're given an identity. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. So when we begin in Genesis chapter 6 and we go forward and we learn about the ark of Noah, we learn that there was a period of time, a, a, a period of time that seems to have taken place over 120 years. As a matter of fact, if you turn to Genesis chapter 6 very quickly, it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and that they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And then in verse 3, this special little Warning, it says, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Some have erroneously thought that this meant that you would, up until this time, live only 120 years. But I don't think that this is what the passage is, is saying. I think what the passage is in fact saying is that the judgment of God was going to come upon the planet Earth and the judgment was going to take place over a 120-year period. And so, a judgment was coming. A proclamation was going to be made. And so Peter identifies those who formerly were disobedience, were those who waited in the days of Noah. Now, when I read this passage and I thought, thanks, Peter... Now, as you can imagine, scholars over the centuries have come up with many different interpretations of, of what we just read. There was a very famous uh, Bible teacher and Bible scholar who was also a medical doctor. Many of you might know the name Richard DeHaan. He wrote a book called Good News for Bad Times, and he lists four main theories to explain the passage. And the, the theories that he outlines begin, number one, the first explanation suggests that these are human beings alive before Noah's flood. And when God told Noah that he would visit judgment on the earth and destroy the world by water, God ordered Noah to build an ark. And Noah and his sons built that ark over the course of 120 years. And according to this explanation, Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, comes upon Noah, if you will, and preaches through Noah and by the power of the Holy Spirit to repent, to turn from your wickedness and your sin and your unbelief that judgment was coming and that in order to escape judgment, you would have to enter into the ark of God. And then we have to ask the question, well, why are these spirits in a cage? As a matter of fact, what did Jesus preach to these spirits in a cage? The second suggestion is that the spirits in prison are a group of beings who were neither angel nor human. 
but rather the offspring of the illicit union of angelic creatures who produce offspring from human beings based on their interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. In that view, the sons of God who saw the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 2, those who embrace this position suggest that when Jesus died, he descended into Hades. Here, it's the place of both the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. And he announces to these imprisoned spirits that he's paid the price for sin. And objections to the view include the idea that the purpose of the preaching isn't given. And in order to embrace that view, you have to interpret Genesis chapter 6 to mean that angelic beings had relations with human beings, producing a race of being that wasn't completely human or completely angelic. The third explanation is that these are the spirits of wicked angels in Noah's day who engaged in some monstrous evil, but what that evil was probably didn't include the marriage with human beings. And the people who hold this view believe that the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 are a reference to fallen angels who enter into the bodies and possess the bodies of human beings and that they begin a life of wickedness and violence, and these men in turn gave birth to other people who were wicked and evil, which is the reference to the Nephilim or the giants in Genesis chapter 6. Bible teachers and scholars who offer this interpretation see that the spirits in prison are sinning angels, and they believe that the reference later in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, if you turn there real quick, it says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly. So the purpose they suggest of Jesus entering Hades or the netherworld or the spirit region was to tell this special group of wicked angels that their doom was certain, that their punishment was certain, that Jesus paid the price for sin, and that he would soon demonstrate that he was the Lord and master over every supernatural being, over principalities and powers, over angels. And uh, by the way, this interpretation is only possible if, in fact, Genesis 6 teaches that these were fallen angels who possessed the bodies of pre-flood humans for the purpose of polluting and deceiving the human race. So that's number three. Number four, the fourth explanation is that these are wicked human beings and Old Testament believers. And so the, the, this interpretation has the idea that, that those who embrace this view suggest that Jesus descends into Hades. Now remember, in the ancient world, Hades is more than just a place where people go when you die. Hades becomes the portal. It becomes the entryway. Obviously, there's two worlds, the world of the living and the world of the dead. And when you pass through the gateway of the world of the living into the world of the dead, you have 
two types of dead people, the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. And this seems to be suggested by the parable or the the story, if you will, that's given by Jesus in Luke chapter 16. Not necessarily a parable, but the story of Lazarus and the rich man who, when Lazarus dies, remember he's taken to the place of the righteous dead by an angel. But the rich man is taken to a place of the unrighteous dead. And according to the the story that Jesus gives, there's a a chasm, a a, a vast chasm between the place that was called Abraham's bosom and the place of the righteous dead. Because we find the rich man in torment, crying out for some sort of relief. And he begs Abraham to send Lazarus over to put a cold dip of water on the surface of his burning tongue. And you remember how the story continues that the chasm was complete and that you couldn't pass over. And you'll remember the rich man cried out and he said, send somebody back to warn my family that this place exists. And he suggested that if a person came back from the dead, they would believe him. And you remember Abraham's response. That even if a person came back from the dead, that they wouldn't believe them. And then Jesus ends the story by saying, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. And so in this particular view, the, the view has it that Jesus goes to the place of the dead to announce to all the wicked spirits and to release the Old Testament saints who are contained in the place of the righteous dead, a compartment that some refer to as Abraham's bosom. They suggest that when Paul writes that Jesus descended first into the lower parts of the earth and led captivity captive, that according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, and that's how they would interpret that particular passage. Other scholars say, no, Jesus' descent into the lower regions could quite appropriately be termed his his journey from heaven to the earth. They say he first announces to fallen angels that Jesus has conquered sin, paid the penalty for sin, then suggesting or contending that believers prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus were not fully forgiven in some way until Christ had presented his sacrifice. And then they maintain that Jesus takes these saints immediately after his death into heaven. This view can only be held if you're convinced of the compartment theory of Hades as biblical and that Old Testament saints were denied access to heaven until Jesus died on the cross. So which is it? Who are the spirits in prison? Are they human beings? Are they angelic beings? Are they some misogynous combination of either or a mongrel race? And what was the message? I died for sin and death is now defeated. Whatever else this means, it can't mean that human beings are given a second chance after they die. As a matter of fact, my note in my Bible reads, 
This means that Christ preached by the Holy Spirit through Noah to unsaved people in Old Testament times. That's one of the views. Their spirits being now in prison, the theory that the Lord Jesus, after his crucifixion, preached to the unsaved dead in Hades and gave them a second chance. Clearly, that's not found in Scripture. The Bible says it's appointed once for a human being to die and then the judgment. Let me help you. Would you say it's safe to say that some Bible passages are difficult? <laughs> Would you say it's safe to say that some are more difficult than others? Dr. Norman Geisler told me something very, very important. He said, never interpret what's unclear by what's unclear. He said, interpret what's unclear by what is clear. And what is clear in the Bible? It's clear that it's appointed once for a person to die and then the judgment. It is clear that people, when they die, they go somewhere. It's clear that human beings were created by God to survive death. Even the unjust go somewhere. And the just go somewhere. Whatever else it means, there are principles that give us clues. And whatever those principles include, it is, number one, that the Bible is a coherent and consistent revelation by God. So whichever interpretation that you embrace, you're going to have to address the challenges that each of the interpretations present. Peter points out that those who perished were destroyed by water. And again, without digressing too greatly, I want you to see the context even in which this problematic passage is given. Those who were saved were saved through water. The Greek word diak can mean through or by, depending on the context. It can have a double meaning. The waters destroyed the wicked, but the waters sustained the ark, making it possible that the ark would survive the flood. Now, I want you to think this through. If the context is suffering, and it is, and surviving suffering is the point, that the next thing that the devil can use to destroy us can be the instrument of our maturation. In other words, some of us become so caught up in the number of different ter- interpretations that the passage offers, we become sidetracked concerning the whole point of the passage. And the whole point of the passage that Peter is trying to make is this, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of heaven. He is the Lord of the earth. He's the Lord of this world and he's the Lord of the next world. And that if God can use suffering in the ministry of Jesus to reconcile you back to the Father, God can use suffering in your life for his glory and for your good. In other words, the instrument that would bring the death of the wicked becomes the very instrument in which he's going to save the righteous. Let me be, give you another point. Do you remember the story in the New Testament of Jesus walking on the water. You remember the story. How Jesus tells him to get into the boat and go to the other side. And you remember a storm came up. And you remember the reality about Jesus walking on the water. When, when people tell me Jesus walked on the water, he did. I tell them most of the time he took a boat. That when he walked on the water, it was the exception and not the rule. 
Was it a miracle? Of course it was. But remember what the waves were. They were the instrument that could overturn the boat and kill everyone on board. And Jesus is walking on the very surface of the thing that can hurt them and kill them. Jesus is Lord over everything and everyone. Sometimes Bible passages are so difficult that sometimes I have to admit I don't know what this passage means. But whatever else it means, here's what I refuse to do. I refuse to abandon what I know for what I don't know. And here's what I know. If the context is suffering, it is. And if surviving suffering is the point, it is. And if the devil wants to use suffering to put a wedge between us in our relationship with God, and he does... Peter is drawing to our attention that suffering can be the very instrument by which God hones and polishes and brings us to a place of dependence upon him. And so look at verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the English Standard Version, it says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thanks again, Peter. We've now jumped from the frying pan into the fire. Not only do we have one difficult passage, now we have another difficult passage. And in this difficult passage, it has caused some to come, I believe, to the wrong conclusion that water baptism saves you. So what is baptism? What is the baptism that Peter's referring to? Is it water baptism? I think what Peter is saying is this water, speaking of Noah and the flood and the judgment, symbolizes baptism. As a matter of fact, if you look in verse 21, there is also an antitype. In the English standard, it says corresponds. But the Greek word is anti. It's used in the Greek language to refer one thing representing another thing. There's another word that you and I use to describe that. We use the term symbol. Typically a symbol. <laughs> I hate to use a word to define the word. Let me use an illustration. I used this illustration in the past. Imagine you're in Baghdad. And you see the American flag flying. And a person comes along and says, that is the symbol of the great Satan. And you say, oh, by the way, do the stars in the flag represent Satan? Do the stripes represent Satan? Do the stars and the stripes represent evil empire of Satan? No. It, what, by the way, what do the stars represent? The states. What do the stripes represent? The original colonies. A symbol cannot mean what it never meant. 
an antitype cannot mean what it never meant. So here it means that which is prefigured or that which symbolizes that which corresponds. And the word can refer to a person, a place, an event, an object that anticipates or foreshadows a perfect fulfillment of an essential idea. So what is he talking about? The flood came as God's judgment on human wickedness. But Noah and his family, the flood meant deliverance from the wicked mockings, the trials, and the persecutions. In other words, the instrument of judgment became an instrument of life. The instrument that destroyed one world became the possibility of a brand new world. And so in baptism, believers identify with Jesus. We are separated from the lost. And now we're put into a whole different category, the found. And so baptism becomes the sign that identifies us with the new covenant, the ceremony of baptism identifies us with the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And when we, when we engage and embrace that ceremony, it becomes a public declaration of love and loyalty to Jesus. Charles Swindoll writes, and I quote, The act of baptism doesn't save us. It just symbolizes the salvation that has already taken place. Peter himself clearly states that those baptismal waters in no way cleanse the flesh. That is, either literally or figuratively, but they do give us a good conscience toward God. Here's the idea. The water of baptism doesn't literally wash away sin. Water on the outside can't cleanse sin on the inside. What can make your guilt go away? What can make your sin go away? It's the sacrifice of Jesus. It's the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus. It's when we understand, accept, and embrace the reality that by faith, God is completely satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's the idea. It results in a pledge. So now think about this. Peter explains the baptism that now saves you results from a pledge, the pledge of a good conscience toward God. And by the way, the word pledge is a technical term in the original language for the signing of a contract or the entering into a contract or the entering into a covenant. Here, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin calls the sinner to change his or her mind, their attitude about sin, their attitude about Jesus. The Holy Spirit then says, I want you to think differently and believe differently about Jesus. What do you want me to believe? I want you to believe that he loves you and I want you to believe that he died for you and I want you to believe that he's the satisfying solution for the problem of sin in your life. And what does that mean? generate a response, a pledge. I believe you. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, calls the sinner to change his or her mind, an attitude about Jesus. The Holy Spirit then calls for the pledge. It's the pledge 
of confident acceptance. I believe this. I receive this. The inward pledge is indicated by an outward sign. Typically at a wedding ceremony, couples make vows to one another. And when I perform a ceremony, I'll say, will you as a symbol or as a sign that you're going to keep your pledges, your covenants, your promises, will you take and wear this ring? By the way, when you wear a ring, does that make you married? No. If you take the ring off, it won't come off. If you take the ring off, does that mean you're divorced? It's an outward sign of an inward pledge and a real promise. That's the point. And so, I want you to think for a moment. Baptism becomes a physical moment that reflects a spiritual commitment. At baptism, does the sinner become a saint? No. The sinner becomes a saint when the sinner takes the pledge that's offered by the Holy Spirit. Now think for a moment. Noah and his family were saved by water. Clearly the water that could have destroyed Noah and his family, if it were not for the ark, wiped out everybody else on the earth. But the moment that they went into the ark, they were saved. The water represents judgment and death. But the same water that made the ark float so its occupants wouldn't be destroyed, so we too, when we enter into Jesus, we find deliverance from wrath. We are safe in God's ark that is Christ. The death of Jesus on the cross, Jesus bears God's judgment against sin, and by faith, we are brought to safety. And so, as you can imagine... In verse 22, it says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. There's so much that I want to be able to communicate, but this becomes at least the most important thing to communicate. That when Jesus died and when Jesus rose and when Jesus ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of God, the picture is is one of absolute powerful authority over everything and everyone. Why is this important for you? Because there are people and there are demonic spirits. There are supernatural forces that want to hurt you and destroy you and cripple you. And there is pain. And there is persecution. And there is suffering. But part of the point that Peter is making is that ultimately all pain, all suffering is going to be done away with. And that Jesus is going to be both Lord and King in every circumstance. So how are we to think about this passage? Let me just give you a couple of thoughts. When suffering comes and pain remains, our precious Savior's love sustains. The absence of pleasure and the presence of loss, our thoughts and attention 
turned to the cross and unjust suffering digs deep in our soul and doubt and depression begins to unfold, the fear of death threatens our peace. We pray and we beg for blessed release, but remember the pain that Jesus sustained and the blessing of life his death has obtained. The fact of his death and unoccupied grave is lingering proof that men can be saved. Here's the point. When unjust suffering seems unbearable, remember Jesus bore the cross. When the fear of death steals your peace, remember the resurrection. And Peter Peter is speaking to a group of people who are in difficult circumstances. For some, it's unbearable pain. For some, it's the imminent threat of death. Peter's point, whatever else this passage means, it must mean this. The cross of Jesus provides the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin forever and ever. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus into heaven means the fear of death is gone forever. But we've got way more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, as we look at the passage of Scripture, Lord, we are amazed. Lord, it never ceases to amaze me that, that Lord, even though there are difficult passages, even though sometimes it's difficult to understand both the text and the context, Lord, we pray that we would learn from what we know as we begin to examine what we don't know. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray, I pray, I pray that for that person who has come here this morning and they want a satisfying solution to the problem passage, my prayer is good luck with that. But Lord, for the person who wants a satisfying solution to the problem of sin and who wants answers to suffering and who wants peace, In the absence of fear, Lord, I pray that they would remember the cross of Jesus. I pray that they would remember the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that they would remember the ascension of Jesus into heaven, that he is alive and able to speak to our hearts and speak to our circumstances, that he saves us and keeps us and sustains us. No matter how hard life gets, And no matter how fearful life looks. And so, Lord, once again, we commit our lives to you. We trust in your presence and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.